Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. Down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus. Uhuru, and welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Uwambi Tongu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. The rapper Killer Mike has faced widespread criticism for exchanging compliments in a publicized meeting with Georgia's Republican governor, Brian Kemp. Billboard-topping rapper Cardi B has been engaging in an ongoing Twitter and Instagram debate with Black conservative commentator Candace Owens, an outspoken supporter of Donald Trump. Many popular Black artists have thrown their support to the Democratic Party. Vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris was given an appearance in the Instagram versus battle between R&B legends Brandy and Monica. Hip-hop emerged from the African working class with lyrics that addressed the conditions faced by the African community and rallied the community to make change. The escalation of Black working class resistance to police occupation that we saw in the last week's shooting of two L.A. County sheriffs in Compton reminds us of N.W.A.'s hit song, Straight Outta Compton, first released in 1988. Hip-hop has always been political and continues to be a place where the ideas of Africans struggling are debated and developed. Our guests today are Fanon Che Wilkins and Ant Black, and we're going to talk about hip-hop music and artists in the political arena. Fanon Che Wilkins earned his Ph.D. at New York University and is a professor of African-American studies at Doshisha University in Kyoto, Japan. Named after Frantz Fanon and Che Guevara, Wilkins has played a crucial role in advancing the study of Black internationalism. Wilkins co-edited the highly influential 2009 anthology of essays From Tucson to Tupac, The Black International Since the Age of Revolution, and is the author of A Line of Steel, the organization of the 6th Pan-African Congress and the Struggle for International Black Power, 1969-1974. to Wilkins is also a DJ and avid snowboarder. Anthony Blackshire is a sociology professor at San Bernardino Valley College in San Bernardino, California, who holds a doctorate in cultural studies from Claremont Graduate University. He is more widely known as Ant Black. Ant Black is a spoken word artist and a founding member of the spoken word group Collective Purpose and co-hosted Elevated, a nationally renowned open mic that ran for over 10 years in San Diego. Blackshire is the author of the doctoral dissertation, A Matter of Life and Death, Poetic Knowledge in the Organic Intellectuals, and Russell Simmons Presents Deaf Poetry. Welcome, Fanon and Ant. Fanon, both your parents were in the Los Angeles branch of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and subsequent revolutionary formations. Their work and your research has been deeply influential to the research and activism of people like Mwambi, Ant Black, and I. Can you speak a little to the book from Tucson to Tupac that you co-edited? In that text and other parts of your research, what is the relationship between Black revolutionary politics and cultural production? Uh, it's a pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you again um, for um, having me. And um, yeah, to your to your question, uh, yes, both my parents were part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, particularly the later iteration, uh, working in the LA chapter office. 
really as a kind of fundraiser wing. They were also coalesced around Harriet Tubman Bookstore, uh, which was in South L.A. at the time. And people like Angela Davis uh, and others cut their teeth um, at Harriet Tubman. But in in terms of that work, obviously, uh, my name, Fanon, uh, my middle name, Che, um, both being named the Fonts Fanon and Che Guevara, you know, essentially, I was sort of born into the movement and, 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 and a kind of a movement baby. After my parents uh, split, my mother uh, moved to Atlanta, Georgia, when I was about four years old, and really worked very closely with James Foreman's Congress of Black Work uh, Congress of Black Workers, which was kind of an offshoot as SNCC was beginning to kind of reconstitute itself in different kinds of formations. But anyway, um, when I Went on to graduate school, it was um, trying to figure out what I wanted to necessarily study um, after going to college in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was originally really interested in African labor history and African labor work. But because of the nature of the of the research, not only the time, but also the access, um, I decided to sort of move into a more African diasporic direction and look at social movements, and particularly those that I was a little bit familiar with. So I did a dissertation on uh, the politics of African liberation and solidarity activity uh, from the late 1960s into the mid-1970s. And that look, that work sort of was part of a kind of a new wave of scholarship that was internationalizing and thinking about the global contours and global dimensions of Black power when most work was really very domestic in orientation and also quite critical in a way that wasn't expansive and uh, layered and nuanced, uh, like many of us believe it needed to be. So um, that's kind of the background. And then when I finished, um, Bill Martin and Michael West, two mentors of mine, we got together and thought about uh, putting together an edited collection, uh, which was during the time that I was finishing my dissertation, I was still really in graduate school. And we began to solicit pieces and put together uh, what became From Tucson to Tupac. That book was really about, you know, sort of centering and building on the scholarship on the centrality and importance of the Haitian Revolution within the context of the age of revolution, uh, really sort of, you know, raising questions about, you know, why we why very few people talk about the Haitian Revolution within the context of the age of revolution, talking about the centrality of Haiti to the creation and birth of the modern West. And then sort of making the sort of global linkages between what we saw in Haiti to what we continue to see within the context of Black liberation in general. And so we have pieces on the Black Panther Party and its international iterations, particularly in Algeria. And we had a piece by, of course, um, a brother named Mark Perry, who did work on uh, hip hop in Cuba, Brazil, and um and other in South Africa, that book was an attempt to sort of link the present to the past, and it was also a link to sort of think about Pac within the context of both his, you know, being named after the Tupamaros, uh, being of course the the son of Afeni Shakur, a Black Panther, um, and also his own political sensibilities and the contradictions that came out of his own development as a young person who was, of course, unfortunately killed. Um, at 25 years old, I think, or just before 25. And so we wanted to sort of shake up the scholarly world a little bit and bring sort of hip hop in conversation with 
you know, rigorous scholarship on social movements uh, globally. And so that was what that book was about. And then from there, you know, I've essentially continued to do that kind of work. And, um, you know, even as a student, as an undergraduate, I dibbled and dabbled in the in the culture like lots of people. Um, I have this I have this vision one day. Y'all don't steal my idea, but uh, I had this idea that I want to do a big documentary on on all the artists that never, quote unquote, made it. Because <laughs> I know so many people who, you know, DJs and MCs and, and crews that we all were involved in some, in some form or fashion, but never got record deals and so forth. We were doing it for the love. But anyway, I had a group we called, uh, we were called Poetical uh, Guerrilla Unit. This was in the early 90s. And we were, we always say that we were the first G unit. And, you know, we had a little bit of fame or opportunity. You know, we opened up for Ducky Fresh once, opened up for MC Light, opened up for K-Solo and Red Man was his DJ. Um, you know, uh, got t- got tips from Dougie on how to walk on stage and how to use a microphone properly. And uh, this was at the Latin Quarter in Detroit uh, during a uh, Nation of Islam Savers Day. And also got an opportunity during that period, I met Pac before he actually became Tupac, or what everyone knew was Tupac. We had a spoken word uh, commemoration for Malcolm X on February 21st, uh, 1990, and or 19, yeah, 1990. And I was the MC, and my friend Taliba, uh, who was part of the Malcolm X grassroots movement, uh, told me that she had a friend in town and that he could rap. And her friend happened to be Tupac. And at the time, I said she asked me if I would let him come on stage and and uh, and rhyme. And um, I did. And I met him. And he was like really honored and happy. And he had a blonde, had a had a high top fade with a blonde streak in his hair. And he was like, "Yo, I would love man, can, you know, if you can let me rhyme. That'd be great, you know." And so um, I let him on stage. It was a really cold day in Atlanta. We were illegally doing this 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 commemoration for Malcolm and. He got up on stage and rapped, and everybody loved it. And he thanked me because the Jungle Brothers at the time were a really big group, and they were in town, and he got a chance to meet them because they also came out to our demo or our commemoration. So anyway, and then I was able to, of course, follow Pac through the years, but you know, he was very, very thankful, and this is before he got big. And I think that next, that same year, that summer, uh, there was a tour that Public Enemy was was uh, was headlining. And um, Pac was with Digital Underground touring with them. And I remember when we went to this concert, myself, Talib, and other people, and um, met, you know, saw him afterwards. And he was just like, man, I'm about to get on. I'm, I'm hustling. I'm out here I'm about to get on. I just remember that. And then there was just like a meteoric, you know, like rise to fame. So anyway, that's kind of a little bit my, you know, sort of dibble and dabble in a little history, um, background, context for the book. Um, my scholarly work and interest in hip hop, et cetera, et cetera. I'm also a Good Life Cafe, you know, uh, alumnus. You know, spent a lot of time with the Good Life um, in the very early days and throughout, um, back and forth here in LA before uh, going between LA and Atlanta in school and so forth. Right, right. Ava DuVernay, she was part of Good Life too, right? Yeah, Ava was there. Yeah, Ava was. I remember Ava and her her I forget her sister that she used to have a crew with, but yeah, Ava was there. Yeah, it was just, I mean, so many people came out of good life. I know, I've, I've got a little bit of background uh-huh. on the fact that I know that you've got this project that you've been working on that has to do with Fela and Bob Marley and 
all those sorts of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little birdie put it in my ear that you've been working on that project yeah, for basically, a long time. Basically, what I've been doing is, um, I mean, it's, it's less, it's more thinking about it and reading and thinking and kind of conceptualizing. But when I wrote my dissertation in 2001, uh, which is 20, almost 20, 20 years ago now, you know, it was on the politics of African liberation solidarity movements. I looked at student nonviolent coordinating committee. I looked at CAP. I looked at a, you know just a, a range of the you know some elements of the BPP, all the African Liberation Day organizers, um, Malcolm X Liberation University folks in North in Durham, North Carolina. I looked at all of those things. Probably the only real artist that I put a profiled you know in any significant way was uh, was was Gil Scott Heron and the Johannesburg song and sort of talked about the con- his con- the context of him co- him and Brian Jackson coming out of Lincoln University and being you know sort of shaped by that HBCU experience and Lincoln having a very long history of bringing in uh, African students continental African students to go to school and so because of that that was a big that played a big role in sort of shaping people like Gill and others. And I was trying to play with this idea of how Johannesburg, you know, was a critical song, you know, in terms of raising consciousness about South Africa. But then, but really Gil Scott Heron himself was tremendously shaped, you know, by the movement. And so this idea that artists can do things that amplify certain voices and certain sentiments, you know, we have to always ask the question of well, how are artists shaped? And um, in one of our earliest jobs, I was teaching at Syracuse University as a graduate student. I taught a course on black art and black and black power. And I was using Nina Simone's little slim autobiography, I'll Put a Spell on You. And in that autobiography, what's interesting is, is she talks extensively about just how she was shaped by the movement and how people like Lorraine Hansberry and James Baldwin and others used to sit her down and really teach her about what was going on. And she was really disconnected. But then she, of course, was moved by everything she was seeing. And so she was always sort of talking in that autobiography about her mentors. And so we have to always keep in sort of, you know, so then, of course, Nina Simone is known as a kind of a a conscious, you know, civil rights, black power oriented artist in terms of, you know, some of the music that she put put out. But we never, you know, we not, not that we never, but we have to always consider the context and what shaped the artist. So when you think about a Fela Kuti, you know, and you think about his experience of coming to the U.S. in 19, late 1960s and particularly being in, in L.A. in 1969 and his exposure to the Panther Party, and his exposure to this sort of black power explosion. I mean, Fela said it real clearly. He was like, you know, African-Americans are looking to Africa, but this is where it's at. They, they, they figured it out here. And his consciousness was shaped as a Nigerian who had lived in you know, London and went to school and traveled, you know, came from a fairly middle class Nigerian family you know, was conscientized by the movement. And then, of course, the, the, the Biafra conflict in Nigeria in 1968, you know, also played a huge role. So, you know, Fela is being shaped by these movements. So my, my interest is really in trying to think about the kind of backward and forward linkage and connection between art and politics, right? How artists are shaped, how their consciousness is, is shaped in by this experience. If we just think about the contemporary moment, right? Naomi Osaka, who just won the U.S. Open, you know, she's wearing, you know, face masks to commemorate the deaths of all of the various people in the, in the latest, you know, numbers of folks killed by police, you know, and people keep asking her about her activism and this and that. And she's just like real clear, like, you know, 
to be honest, I'm not really even an activist, and I don't even want to. And it's not, that, and I love activists, and I appreciate activists, but I'm not one. I don't want to project something that I'm not. I just, I just want to use my platform to try to raise people's consciousness about what we see out here in the streets. And I think that was really humbling and sweet and sincere of her. And um, and it plays a role, and it's important. And she's being politicized and shaped every day. She just happens to have a platform where she can utilize the space to. And she has the courage to do that. So it's really about trying to deal with, you know, the, my project in terms of my book project and so forth is really about trying to to look at that, you know, the, how artists are shaping and how they're being shaped and the sort of, you know, the nuances and, and, and so forth between those things. Yeah, I really appreciate that because, of course, we know that there's a bunch of contradictions in hip hop and contemporary black culture overall. But uh, Chairman O'Malley Ashtetela notes that much of the culture that black people that black people produce is simply a reflection of the political economy, the situ- the material reality under which people live. So, if there's no activism taking place, you can't expect there to be revolutionary art being produced. So, so. I really appreciate the way through which you and your work and really your whole generation of yourself, but also people who uh, come uh, a little bit before you and after you really uh, have uh, asked us to really consider uh, the multitude of relationships between uh, uh, culture and revolution without really uh, being idealistic or, or romantic. But um, yes, but so so yeah, now, and, and, and it's not just not just uh, idealistic or romantic, but you know um, there was a I think you might have even been on this. There was a really interesting Facebook thread um, that Greg Tate, uh, you know, who is you know sort of call him the mayor of Bohemia, but uh, one of the great writers from the Village Voice days and the heyday in the eighties and nineties, uh, music reviewers and so forth, but also. You know, a instrumental, you know, he plays guitar with Burnt Sugar Orchestra, um, you know, Funketeer, you know, just amazing writer and so forth. But Greg Tate was, we were talking about Motown and he was just talking about how important and revolutionary Motown was. And some folks, even myself, were like, well, can we talk about Motown as a revolutionary entity? Right. And the, the issue came up. Well, you know, when we think about Barry Gordy and we think about Motown as an institution, as a musical institution versus its artists, we're talking about kind of different things. Right. And so as an institution, you know, Gordy in many ways reproduced a lot of the same kinds of economic and social relations that other record companies reproduce. He ripped people off. He took people to this to that, and so forth and so forth. But he also produced this fairly independent institution in a moment where there was was very, very difficult to do that. What he was able to pull off with Motown was nothing short of, you know, just, you know, you know, just out of this world. Gordy is one thing, but the music that was produced and the way the music was interpreted, you know, is another thing. So you take a Dancing in the Streets by Martha and the Vandellas, and it's not a song that is, you know, was put forth to be so-called revolutionary, but it was a song that was about dancing in the streets and as black mm-hmm. people are in the streets, you know, as mm-hmm. black people are writing, you know, are, are, are engaged in, in, in rebellion, you know, they, they are also dancing. And so dancing in the streets becomes an anthem, you know, for rebellion, right? It wasn't necessarily intended to be that, 
but it became that, you know, and it came, it became that because it, it also was created by an independent black institution that was shaped by, you know, the Fortis motor production in Detroit, Michigan, and everything else that came along with being in Detroit and being black by, you know, by young people who grew up in places like Brewster Projects and other places in Detroit. And in some ways, the relationship between politics and culture is reversed in the hip hop culture. Bakari Kitwana in his book, Hip Hop Generation, argues that it was an art form that rose before the mass movement, unlike the black arts movement and earlier movements. Do you agree with this statement? Yeah, that's that's a tough part of that book. I mean, I, I respect that book. I respect that work so much. I relied on it a lot. And continued to rely on it just to to form, you know, my understanding of hip hop, um, especially in light of the fact that as, as a poet, looking at hip hop isn't always about music and music industry. And it causes into, uh, you know, the reminder of the other elements. So uh, graffiti writing, um, the dancing. And so often, you know, we're focused or we center the conversations around music that uh, the other elements in hip hop, or even as I like to refer to them as like the, the margins of hip hop, such as as poetry, you know, it, it takes a different form. I don't know if, I, if I'm in a position to agree nor disagree, but I think what's important is when we see the art or we see a movement, we too often uh, focus on that moment rather than all of the micro moments that are happening below. All the open mic spaces, all of the ciphers, all of the people hustling $10 t-shirts, five, $10, $20 CDs, you know, these, these moments really shape the movement. Um, these moment movements shape the art form. So when something big historically, or when we look back now, something big historically, it seems like one thing is responding to another. Or if we look contemporary, uh, we see the deaths of so many black men, um, black women, that uh, they become big moments for us. And we see, you know, the the art responding, even if it's commercial art and art that's designed to sell products. It looks like that's responding to something when I, I would say it's more accurate to acknowledge how these things are always happening and always occurring and always responding to each other at, at some point or another. Right. I mean, People are writing poems about everything in our community. People are producing art about everything. One of the, the amazing things about social media and the way the internet's working and music and art streams is now we get to see it, right? People um, who are being brutalized or terrorized or economically marginalized in one community, we get to see not just that, how it's happening 3,000 miles away, uh, but we get to see the art that's responding to it. That really is creating a, a very unique moment. So again, I, I mean, I respect the hip hop generation. It's, it's a phenomenal text, but it also goes to show how hip hop has changed so much and how hip hop has evolved. Because like you say, we've evolved, the technology's evolved, society's evolved and, and changed. And, uh, you know, the best thing about hip hop is it continues to change because there's some other cultural art forms, other cultures, other movements, other groups of people that just can't say the same. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Fanon, Che Wilkins, and Aunt Black. Fanon, only recently I came across this track titled, How We Gonna Make the Black Nation Rise, by a rapper named Brother D. Brother D was a math teacher 
and member of the New York-based Family of Black Science. It is a remarkable track that calls for African unity, cooperative economics, and resistance to the U.S. counterinsurgency. They even quote Garvey, amongst other people. My favorite verse is when Brother D says, America was built, understand, by stolen labor on stolen land. Almost 20 years before Dead Prez, Brother D produced what possibly could be called an African internationalist song. Let's take a listen. America was built, understand, by stolen labor on stolen land. Take a second thought as you clap and stamp. Can you rock the house from inside the camp as you move a little beat to the early night? Because you're moving to, moving to the right. Prepare now or get high and wait cause it ain't no party in the holy state. Released in 1980, it is noted to be the first quote-unquote political rap song. The Cheryl Lynn Got To Be Real sample on the track is still hot, and the flow of Brother D and the others are pretty good. How does the production of this track represent the political moment of the late 1970s and the early 80s? Also, how does its relative obscurity in the hip-hop canon represent the commercial trajectory of hip-hop? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um... I just I just became familiar with the track um, just just recently myself, and um, you know I think that we have to sort of take you know it, you know take history very seriously with hip hop, and I think we're you know when we talk about sort of what came before formal hip hop uh, in terms of spoken word, you know when we think about of course the last poets and Gil Scott Heron and you know, and all those things that came out of the late 1960s and so forth. I mean, that was the sort of early scaffolding, you know, the way in which the voice was used, you know, the rhyming schemes, the poetic scheme, like all of that stuff was was central. So, you know, it makes sense that there would be, you know, other, you know, sort of explicitly political, you know, tracks and songs that were created during that particular time. Um, I think that, you know, the impulse to be able to use rap or the art of rapping to actually, you know, engage in something that's explicitly political, I mean, makes a whole lot of sense, you know. Um, but then again, we have to still grapple with what is the political, right? Because, you know, many, for many of us, we marked, you know, we look at commercial hip hop sort of beginning with Sugar Hill Gang. And what that meant and, you know, and rapper's delight. But, you know, as we move into the, you know, to, to the mid 80s and we get to the message, you know, the message becomes kind of that song, you know, that sort of marks that that moment. You know, um, you know, when the when, when Grandmaster Flash and the Furious, Furious Fly, Five got behind Jesse Jackson or attempted to try to, you know, challenge, you know, uh, you know, uh, Nancy Reagan's you know, just say no campaign and, you know, and also do a song for Jesse Jackson. I mean, that that song and never compared to the message. <laughs> like, you know, it just was it was explicitly political. It was, you know, trying to support Jesse Jackson and his run for office, you know, in a in a traditional, you know, electoral way. Um, but it was not it was it wasn't hip. It wasn't it wasn't dope at all. I mean, as a song. I mean, it was just very, you know, you know, almost kind of propaganda, like almost propagandistic in some respect. And so I didn't find it, you know, that that interesting. And so I think this is why you have a lot of artists from the dead presses on down who, 
you know, or someone like a Jasiri X who, you know, who would use their platform and their voice, but then rhyme over the beats of, you know, artists that are popping and resonating right now in the streets because that sound and that music is still so important and so incredible. And so it's really not about dismissing one or the other. If you're going to rhyme over Mob Deep and talk about something explicitly political, that's cool. But then, you know, but then Mob Deep also has a has a political space to occupy, you know, and that's where I that's where I think I'm more interested in at this particular point, as opposed to just explicitly, you know, songs that have explicit political content. What about you, Ant? What do you think about that song? Yeah, the that, that Brother D song reminds me a lot of this record called Felon Shoes. And um, Felon Shoes, I, I wish I could remember who it was by. I want to say it was like a, I don't know if it was a journalist or, you know, somebody who had good intentions uh, for young black kids, young black uh, boys, telling them not to wear those felon shoes because they'll get robbed and shot and killed for those felon shoes. And initially it was a poem, I think a doctor, and this group turned it into uh, a record. And as... um. Fanon was saying, right, what's political? That that was political, even though now we can look back at it and say, you know, the politics representation were real problematic, even such that Run DMC's um, My Adidas references that song when they say, you know, these are not our felon shoes. We uh, got on stage at Live Aid, all this good that they did. Uh, so it really reminds me of this time of a lot of people, how they were trying to use this youth art and youth culture to connect and in some, sometimes it hits, right? And sometimes it doesn't hit. And what is it about? Uh, again, I like Fano's question. What is it about a record that that makes it hit? That makes it relevant um, in hip hop? And you know, that's a question I, I wish a lot of artists knew the answer to. Now let's listen to one of my favorite tracks, "Police State" by Dead Prez. This is the 20th anniversary of Dead Prez's album "Let's Get Free." But in many ways, this album and track could have been released yesterday and not skipped a beat. Let's go ahead and take a listen. You know how we think Organize the hood under our ching banners Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas FBI spying on us through the radio antennas And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society With no respect for the people's right to privacy I take a slug for the cause like Huey P While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P I wanna be free to live Able to have what I need to live Bring the power back to the street Where the people live We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons Dying over money and relying on religion for help, we do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy. A way of life based off the common needs. And all my comrades is ready, we just spreading the seed. The black male live a third of his life in a jail cell. Cause the world is controlled by the white male. And the people don't never get justice. And the women don't never get respected. And the problems don't never get solved. And the jobs don't never pay enough. Can y'all explain the significance of this track and this album to the African liberation struggles of the late 90s and the early 2000s and how it compares to this very moment that we're living in right now? First, Ant and then Fanon. Dead Prez, Police State is a good example of a lot of, of Dead Prez where they're very prescriptive. They don't simply observe and and report 
like NWA, like other um, quote unquote conscious rappers, like Dead Prez is is very clear on what the solutions are in relation to what the problems are in the ways that they identify it, right? I mean, whether you're talking about police state, whether you're talking about, you know, what you should eat, how you should raise kids, um, they they were very prescriptive. And, And I think that's something that defines something that's not just reactionary. As a listener, you're not just hearing the same, okay, I know that's a problem. Yeah, I can relate. Yeah, I can relate. It's like, okay, well, this is what you should do about it then. And this is where Dead Prez is is obviously um, powerful, is that their solutions are radical. And I mean that in the very literal sense, right? So, man, I, I, I I, I wished I was on Dead Prez, right, when they were out. Um, unfortunately I was less Huey P and more Master P at that time, but it, it goes to show how a group like Dead Prez could still be relevant um today to help, whether it's radicalize people or or wake people up or just be an alternative, man. Their their music is just it, it's life affirming and it's long lasting, it's longevity. So yeah, police state's just a great example of that. Yeah. Um yeah, police state, you know, wonderful song. I mean, I'm a Huge, huge fan of Dead Prez. I've been listening to them from the very, very beginning. Again, you know, I just, I, I just love the fact that, you know, they were, they've always that song. Of course, speaks. To, I mean, I, you know, fourteen years old. I, you know, I was pulled over by the police for the first. Well, actually, no, thirteen years old. I was pulled over by police for the first time in seventh grade, just walking home. You know, from Bret Hart Elementary School on Ninetieth and Colden, and walking up Vermont, coming across Crenshaw on the islands, and getting pulled over and told that we were basically, you know, they were pulling us over to, 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 uh, you know, question us mm-hmm. and with no real clarity. And essentially, you know, we would later learn that we were just basically being dumped into a gang database. And so that was the first time. And then at 14, you know, walking across the street in Santa Monica, California with a boogie board on my, on my side, Jay walking across the street, like everybody else. And I was pulled over and given my first ticket and had to appear in court in Santa Monica municipal court, you know, at 14 years old, it was thrown out, but that was my first real contact with the law at 13 and 14. So, you know, growing up in, in South LA, you know, police and, you know, police issues have just been a longstanding, you know, reality. So it was, you know, that song and, you know, Dead Prez are a little younger than me, you know, a few years younger. And so I was always, you know, it, it, it hit, it hit resonated for me, you know, because of my experience um, and, and recognizing uh, uh, sort of policing and, and what it means for our community. But um, what I love about them is that they were always very grounded and didn't seem to really try to disconnect themselves or even really be just conscious hip hoppers, but just being who they were, you know, as label mates with the Wu-Tang Clan, you know, at Loud Records, label mates with Mob Deep, wanting to be basically Mob Deep, <laughs> you know, but with a but with a you know with, with a much more politically engaged lyricism, um, but but musically you know in terms of how they wanted that that beat the thump, you know how did they want that feet what feeling they were trying to grapple was the same thing that Mob Deep was trying to deal with, you know even though Mob Deep was dealing with something different you know lyrically. So anyway, yeah, very very important music. In one of the things that absolutely sets Dead Prez apart from others is that they came into the rap scene as political organizers, as members of the what was at that time called 
National People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. So what you hear on the album is African internationalist theory, uh, which, like I said, in many ways sets it apart from, I guess, what Ant might call the organic intellectualism of some other rappers and things like that. So, But the other thing that I think also uh, makes it remarkable in the time span is that really the period separating that album and this moment right now is 9-11 and the way in which 9-11, I would argue, caused a sort of a shift in at least mainstream hip-hop culture. There was Amadou Diallo, Abner Louima, people like Demetrius DeBose, other There were a lot of concern. There was the, the brother in, in Cincinnati. You know, there was a lot of concern about police brutality and 9-11 hit. And we were told, you got to be patriotic. And, 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 and we start seeing red, white, and blue and all the rap videos and things like that. But the police didn't stop killing people. Uh, Africans didn't stop going to jail and stuff like that. So to me, uh, when we go back to that moment, it really is a reflection of the activism that was on the ground at that time and the activism that's on the ground right now. So, Ant, I want to ask you, in your research, you examined spoken word in the shadow of 9-11. Did 9-11 have an impact on the progressive character of hip-hop culture? I said, yeah, absolutely. Um, 9-11 absolutely pushed hip-hop in a way. And, and it's really tough to see because, um, as you kind of alluded to, the Billboard charts were being flooded with hip-hop albums and, and hip-hop R&B or hip-hop soul albums. And I appreciate that you talked about the, you know, the, the sudden wave of patriotism that occurred. You know, 50 Cent goes you know, bonkers in album sales. Eminem goes bonkers in album sales. And a lot of this has to do with you know, this desire for unity and the ways in which hip-hop and, and party music uh, people like to dance and, and the TRL and all of these things are operating in the uh, what we identify as the mainstream of hip hop. But in other spaces, I, I mean, in, in spoken word poetry communities, particularly, right, these are just absolute spaces and, and radical poems that are naming the president, um, naming relations with Palestine and Israel and and naming, you know, uh, connecting what happened on 9-11 and after 9-11 to what's been happening to Black communities, to Brown communities, naming what's been happening to to women and identifying rape culture. 9-11 is a particularly interesting period in my work because Deaf Poetry Jam is filmed in New York on December. And the reason why it's filmed in December is because the schedule date was the weekend after 9-11. So obviously the poets couldn't get there. Uh, Stan Lathan and Russell, uh, Russell Simmons couldn't get the film crews to um, the Edison Ballroom. So there's a, a three-month delay that's caused by uh, you know, the, the TSA and the, the, the airplanes not flying. And uh, for folks who are interested in Deaf Poetry Jam or Spoken Word, Sahar Hamad, who writes, you know, one of the iconic pieces on the show, first writing since, as a woman who's Palestinian reflecting on the towers collapsing and the planes crashing, um, that poem only happens because the filming is delayed and they're able to rush her in and, and bring that piece in into the series. 
And it, it's groundbreaking. I, I think spoken word in, uh, um, is, uh, I, I, how do I say? It, it demonstrates what's been happening underground. And, and Death Poetry Jam gave us this insight where in the following seasons, man, you see Danny Hawk criticizing President Trump, right? Outright saying President Bush is quoting Bruce Willis from The Siege. Um, you get a poem that's literally called Bush. And this is on national television, right? And and to whatever degree we can argue that this sort of um, set things in motion for how we criticize the president today, it's rather interesting. But um, yeah, 9-11 was just a big thing that we saw underground hip hop, how they respond to to politics and to what's happening. Fanon, you spent, you spent yeah. part of your childhood in Atlanta. In fact, you attended Morehouse College for your undergraduate studies. So you're familiar with the rap scene in the South. Atlanta is arguably the capital of Dirty South hip-hop. Dirty South rap connected to the legacies of colonial slavery under the counterinsurgency following the defeat of the African Revolution. Dirty South rap tended to embrace the African poor and working class in opposition to the African petty bourgeoisie leadership. Rap historian Matt Miller noted Dirty South's rap's rhetorical rejection of the images and ideas related to a white supremacist South that often characterized the South rap of this period formed a point of identification between young Black Southerners and their counterparts in other areas of the United States. How do you explain the departure from the generally progressive origins of hip-hop to the political stances we see today coming from people like T.I. and Killer Mike? As I mentioned earlier, in addition to going to Morehouse College prior to that, when my mother moved to Atlanta in the early 1970s, around 1974, she was uh, working in a shirt, a shirt factory, uh, putting collars on shirts and uh, working with Black Workers Congress, which was formed by uh, James Foreman, uh, former communications secretary of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And the idea of the uh, Black Workers Congress was for, for Black organizers to actually organize at the point of production. And so that was her task. And that's why she was sort of, you know, in Atlanta working at that time. Anyway, so my early experience of Atlanta was as a kid, and then I went back and forth and went back to L.A. for the most part growing up and then came back as a college student. But when I was in L- excuse me, in Atlanta in 1983 as an eighth grader, um, I uh, distinctly had, I had a really good friend. His name was Eric McFarlane. He was from the Bronx, and his mother was a nurse, and she worked you know, all the time. And I was at his house, and that's where I got in, introduced to Enjoy Records. And Enjoy Records was a label that that uh, that uh, uh, treacherous the treacherous three Modi's old group, the Funky Four Plus One, like all of them were on this this label. And this is where I first heard Run DMC's you know early records and stuff. And so anyway, I had this connection to New York and Eric McFarlane in the South, and I was an LA kid who had moved back and forth, and so. It's important because later on, as when when the Dirty South or when, you know, when Goody Mob, you know, and CeeLo from Goody Mob really coined that term. And CeeLo, of course, originally was a member of OutKast, uh, but the, but they decided to, to, to allow CeeLo to anchor Goody Mob as an MC and allow uh, Big Boy and Dre to just be OutKast. When that came about, when they said, you know, we pulled up on you and bumping Rock the Bells, and we took what we wanted and it was quiet as hell. Like for me, I lived through that moment. I knew about the sort of anxiety and some of the, I don't want to say insecurity, 
that Southern, Black Southern folks had and reverence for East Coast hip hop, right? Because I don't know if you know this, but the, the, the Southern market was always, in the U.S., has always been the largest market in terms of the consumption of rap music, in terms of buying and purchasing, right? So there was a way in which the dirty, which the South was so hip hop, right? Um, but of course, people had these, you know, these stereotypes about the South. And so, so much of what Goody Mob and Outkast were articulating was both, you know, their reverence, you know, their, their underdog status, but it was also an internal conversation with other black people in other regions of the country. And it's the same thing that happened, in, you know, with West Coast hip hop, you know, and Snoop and, and them going to, to the Source Awards and, you know, and basically, you know, saying, y'all, you know, y'all aren't y'all down with, you know, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, you know, that type of thing. So the point I'm making is that that conversation that's going on, you know, there's an com- internal conversation in the black community that's going on regionally and about regional, you know, matters and things that matter. Now, in terms of thinking about the current moment in Killer Mike and, and T.I. and so forth, you know, I think that both of those brothers, you know, are well-meaning. Uh, they're both trying to utilize their platforms to, you know, to, to advance, you know, things politically in some respects. They both are evolving. You know, they, they neither one of them came out of explicitly political context. Neither one of them were, you know, as Elaine Brown says, nobody comes out of the womb with a raised fist. So they were, you know, working class brothers from the neighborhood, you know, and have developed and, you know, worked to use their voice to do some things. But because of, as you mentioned, um, so much of the early, you know, sort of dirty South hip hop was sort of challenging the black petty bourgeoisie. But what happens when you become part of the bourgeoisie? <laughs> what happens when you have a LaFace Records that's so successful and you have tremendous wealth, you know, that's being generated in a place like Atlanta? And then, of course, in one of the poorest black you know, cities in the country, and then you have black mayors and other things. And so you have and you've always had a historical black middle class in Atlanta. And there's been tensions and class tensions. And so here you find a T.I. and Killer Mike who are rich rappers whose credibility rides on their street relationships and their authenticity, whether whether it's real or not. And then the real reality of, you know, of, this, of, of, of the city being on fire, you know, and then, you know, the contradictions emerge in terms of, you know, where they sit you know, uh, on these matters. And so we saw Killer Mike and, you know, and T.I. urging black people to go home and stop tearing up their own communities when they weren't necessarily tearing up their own communities. They were mashing on, you know, various establishments, Targets and, you know, Wendy's, you know, restaurants and things of that nature. But this process, I think, I don't think Killer Mike and T.I. should be marginalized. I think they should be part of the conversation. I think they should be struggled with and pushed. But um, but I also think that they, you know, in the moment of ch- change and transformation, um, found themselves, you know, making taking some positions that I think were in opposition to what was happening on the ground. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Fanon Che Wilkins and Aunt Black. Aunt. In San Diego, you hosted the longest-running spoken word space in San Diego history, Elevated. What can underground organizers learn from Collective Purpose and Elevated in 2020? Yeah, love people. 
that's the biggest the biggest reflection the biggest thing that led to our success was was we loved people you know if you love people and you put people's voice and interest and their needs um, above the money that you get, above the fame, whatever fame you can get at a spoken word open mic. Uh, if you put people's needs and, and why they're coming and connecting with the community first, you know, they hold you down. We we definitely had such a long run because the people demanded that we have a long run. And it's because we created a space, um, a space for college students to, to find out who they were and t- a microphone to test who they were, to test how their ideas were and how it sounded. Um, that was at the core of it. And, and I think for the brothers and sisters who were a part of Elevated, we were growing and we were trying to figure out who we were. And, you know, that community provided that space for us to figure it out. So uh, in terms of organizing, you know, keep people at the center, keep keep people at the center before the money, keep people at the center before the ego, keep people at the center before you worried about seeing your name on the flyers or on the Facebook posts. Just, yeah, focus on the people. Fanon, so who are you listening to and who should we be looking out for these days? Are you optimistic about the future for Black culture and the revolution? Oh, man, I, I actually am very, very optimistic. You know, I'm really, really proud of, excited and uh, energized by all of the horizontal kind of organizing, uh, palavering, ciphering, uh, the hundreds of different organizations that are out here, uh, the artists, you know, the ways in which even celebrity culture has been, you know, sort of dumped into or pulled into the struggle, um, whether it's the National Basketball Association or Halle Berry rocking a Breonna Taylor t-shirt, like all those things matter and really are important. So I'm, I'm really really excited about that in terms of like music and art and you know i'm listening to you know you know pretty much a lot of everything um you know on the hip-hop tip um i really like this kid coda the friend um i like um you know he's a brooklyn kid you know who's been working out here in la i really like his work i like saba um that whole chicago youngsters out of chicago people like no name and so forth i like those artists I like, you know, I like all the other little gunner and, you know, all the little like hard heads, you know, um, trap music, you know, folks. I mean, I'm going to get down with that and listen to that. What I appreciate the most is that I think that um, is that is this the, the, the dialogue and the, the discourse for me? Hip hop's power is really not in all the individual music sounds. But it's really that it's a it's a real cipher. It's a real gathering space where we just debate and engage. You know, I remember being in Cuba in 1995 and we were coming and we were in Pinar del Rio. We had been paying a hospital with the Vince Ramos Brigade and we were coming into Havana for the first time. And I remember getting out of the car and I just saw like literally like a, it was like 500 to 1000 people just like arguing in each other's face they was just damn near spitting each other's face it was going at it so hard and i was like man what what's the hell is going on over there and they was like oh they just talking about cuban baseball (laughs) you know it's like it was literally thousands of people you know engaged and this is like baseball like ain't about just it's just like the amateur pro baseball but just cuban baseball like the level of interest and so forth. And I think of hip hop like that, you know, it's the discourse, it's the dialogue, it's the struggling, you know, it's the conflict and contradictions of it that actually is its power. 
that is what I love about it. You know, it, we don't see too much paneling and stuff about R&B or other kinds of forms of music. And so because, as, as, as Brother Ant mentioned earlier, when we think about the culture in its totality, you know, whether it's graffiti or whether it's, you know, the dance and breaking or DJing or, you know, emceeing or, you know, or even in terms of just the entrepreneurial dimensions of it, like that's that's to me is is where it's at. You know, and um, we can get back and we can get, pick our sides and decide who we down with and what we rocking with. But it's the actual larger arena and being a bit older now and kind of looking at the whole thing and never being somebody that's looking to being too nostalgic, you know, but always trying to keep up with what's happening. You know, I'm, I'm really excited about what's, what's before us. A scholar that I'm pretty sure you know for no name, Clyde Woods, mm-hmm. actually suggests that. Uh, hip hop and yeah, hip hop and blues, right? Exactly. Rest in peace. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, argues that hip hop and blues really had more more in common with each other politically than maybe hip hop and art forms that uh, aesthetically hip hop was was more similar to. And and what I think that's important with is that it's important about what I think is important about that is that. Hip hop, like the blues, comes from uh, the African working class, and it embodies all of the contradictions of life in the African working class at a moment of counterinsurgency in which the revolutionary movements have been uh, overrun. Uh, but as it asks us to to reckon with uh, those contradictions, uh, it can also help us provide and imagine a political way forward. So, and. I'll ask you the same question. Who are you listening to today? And who should we be on the lookout for? Are you optimistic about the future of Black culture and revolution? Yeah, I, I also am very optimistic. I mean, I love us, so I'm, I'm always going to root for us and, and want to see us do better and, and do what we want to do and have self-determination and practice that in all forms. So I'm always rooting for us, so I'm always going to be optimistic and uh, I, I am optimistic. I am optimistic. I mean, anytime you see what's what we now talk about as trap music or, or gangster rap, having a, a level of awareness and consciousness to articulate, you know, what we're debating and discussing in sociology classes about social movements, I, I can't help but get excited that the um, the strategies and the lessons and the histories are coming about. Because it's just some students that aren't going to pay attention in class, but they'll get this message. It'll spark that curiosity. Man, I love Rhapsody. That is right. I got her in my top five. I, I, she only got two two records, a couple of uh, mixtapes. But man, I, I love Rhapsody. And even though she's on a Grubhub commercial or something, hey, make your money, sis. I also really enjoyed that YBN Corday album. You know, it was just something about his grandmother singing. Uh, that just warmed my heart. And and anytime you can have a grandmother singing a church song and Anderson Pack singing a song, it it it, it reminds me of um the whole the wholeness of who of who we are, right? As black people, as black boys or black men, right? That all of these things uh, inform us of who we are and, and we grow and make decisions later accordingly. Man, I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out some of some of my friends. Um Kimon is doing some amazing work right now. I got a cousin, Ashley, who's trying to be in country music, a black country singer. And so I'm watching her and and hear her go through all the struggles. And despite the fact that, you know, she'll say, I I do pop music, I do fun music, I do fun country music. 
man, the way my sis is struggling, I'm like, that's hip hop for real. Um, so yeah, we, I'm optimistic. Uh, I'm excited about hip hop and I'm just excited about what, what black folk are doing and, and not distancing themselves from this time and this movement and just taking it to all avenues of their art. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Fanon Che Wilkins and Ant Black. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Ankh, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guests, Fanonche Wilkins and Ant Black for joining us today. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in.